Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we hear, we hear the heart cry. We hear the heart cry of dry and weary land. And Lord God, we thank you that you are our satisfaction. You are the one who pours out your blessings. Lord Jesus Christ, we feel prompted this morning to be the people of your word who see when you're doing new things, Lord God, and ask Christ Jesus that you would help us to perceive them, Lord God. Lord God, where there are new springs, streams in the desert, Lord God, where there are these things, Lord God, help us to be perceptive to them, Lord Jesus. We know, we know, we know that our satisfaction, indeed the satisfaction of the whole earth is in you. And so again we ask, you pour out your grace, Lord God. Pour out your goodness. In just a a few moments, we're going to come and praise God as we draw to a close in our gathering together and you know you'll be prompted to uh, to give as we do each week as we give towards the, the ministry and the mission of the church here but I do want you to remember those those cards that you have on your seats as well when it comes to that time and if you know the spirit's prompting in this as I'm sure many do then that's a response that we can make but I just wanted to share one more thing uh, before we come to that point and I suppose I should let you sit down for a moment shouldn't I you can as well if you want. That's, yeah. We won't be too long, don't worry. I know you probably have a, a moment of trepidation, don't you? And you see Pastor Greg has got to the, has got to the, uh, the pulpit and it's quarter to 12 and you're probably worrying, aren't you? Now, I really should have set the timer on my oven for a bit later. Uh, this guy, he can go on a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be incredibly disciplined. I want to share really just, just very one, one brief thing um, this morning. Um, tonight... Um, we're going to be sharing at length on this subject as we come around communion, our, our table of remembrance. And I would encourage you uh, most heartily to, to, to come and to join in that table of communion as we gather together with Jesus in that. But the, what I wanted to talk with you uh, this morning, just very briefly, um, it, it flows in uh, our journey as a church at the moment. And you'll know over these past couple of weeks, um, I've been away. Uh, but I've heard some good things, and I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited by you. Did you know you were exciting people? Now look at the person next to you. They're pretty exciting, aren't they? They're pretty thrilling people. Um, I hear some really great things. Um, but I, I know that as a church, we, we've been journeying on uh, something of a journey that, that we're kind of um, under the heading of emotionally healthy spirituality. And um, th- there is a book that we're recommending to you by a, a man named Pete Scazzaro, uh, pastors in New York. And uh, it really is an excellent book. Um, I've, I've not quite finished it. But as I've been reading this book, I said to somebody the other day, uh, I've been reading it, and even in the first couple of chapters, I felt like I was being skewered by the Spirit about a hundred times. Um, so is that a book recommendation? I don't know. If I, some of you might be like, I'm staying away from it. No, but genuinely, feeling the prompting of, of the Spirit and 
How does the prompting of the Spirit work within us? Well, the Scriptures on one occasion, they say this. They say that, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Anybody know that the Bible says that? Yeah? That as believers, we don't just kind of fashion some sort of Christianity out of our kind of wisdom or out of some sort of generated emotion. You know, generated emotions, they fade. Our wisdom will always come to the end. But when God prompts something within us, And when God prompts something within us toward our our own personal brokenness, which stems from sin, that that rebellion against God, that lack of trust in him, which even though, and you know, I I hope and I I trust that you are in Christ. If you're not, come and talk to me afterwards and I can help you to understand what that means. But even when we are in Jesus, we know that we are on a journey of change, aren't we? Or is it just me? We're on a journey of change, aren't we? And you know, that's what that word repentance means. It means that change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of attitude and and action, all of the things that flow from a, a change. But these things are prompted within a godly sorrow. When it is that we realize or recognize within ourselves that there are things that we need God in. Isn't it true that we recognize these things not just once, twice, many, many times, over and over again, don't we? And as our our minds and our spirits are enlivened to see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus and we're wanting to be like him. Does anybody want to be like Jesus here this morning? Okay, I hope we're in the right place for this. But as our our minds and our spirits are enlivened in such a way, well, there can even be in that, that godly sorrow. And it's a longing. It's a longing to be like Jesus. And even as we've heard this morning, there may be godly sorrow that is prompted within us when we see some of the injustices and the pains and the weariness and the aches and the challenges and the devastating consequences of the brokenness of our whole world. And within us might be prompted a godly sorrow that leads to even a kind of repentance in that, that we might change the way that we look at things and look at people that we might change the way we, we, we fashion our lives, the way that we order our, our resource. A godly sorrow leading to repentance. Now, we as a church, uh, I would suggest we're in something of a season of change, change of the way that we think about things, change of the way that we go about things. And I know not everybody likes change. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it, really? Almost nobody that I come across really likes change. We like change as long as somebody else is getting changed. Yeah? I can think of a few people who need changing. Hey, yeah? Can you think of that? No, don't answer that. Um, we're all right with that. But when it's change for us or change for the way that we go about things, change perhaps even for our church, that's a tricky thing to think about. Now, in this journey of emotionally healthy spirituality, you know, we've been talking about things like how we might know ourselves so that we might know God how that we might think about the things that have made us the people that we are, how we might recognize our limitation. Does anybody know that they're not God? Yeah, okay. And it, but sometimes we, we push that boundary of limitation back so far that we don't even attend to that thought. The fact of the matter is our limitations are pretty close. The longer you go through life, the, the more you realize that your limitations are closer than you thought. Thinking about these things, and and this morning, just briefly, tonight at greater length, we're thinking about what it is to properly journey through loss and grief. 
And these things come about because there are so many changes within life. So many changes within life. You know, every family, every culture, every generation, every nationality has their way of dealing with loss and grief. And, and we want to do so biblically tonight. We're going to look uh, extensively at the example of Jesus as we come around that table. I don't know whether you've thought about the process of change, the process of loss, how properly to grieve, how properly to mourn, how this actually might enable us to be Christ-like, how it actually might be part of our testimony and our witness in the world. But the Bible's thought about this. That's good news. I don't know whether you realize, but about two-thirds of the Psalms in your Bible are what are called laments. They're songs of sorrow. They're songs of, of, of loss and of lack and of mourning and of grief. Most of the book of Job is of a man wrestling with how these losses and these pains became ever closer within his life until he was reduced to, well, nothing. And there he stood with nothing in the sight of God. And how he wrestled with that. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Has anybody read that book recently? <laughs> I didn't think I would get many responses for that. Well, maybe we should. Jesus himself wept on occasion, didn't he? Wept over the death of his good friend. Wept as he looked over the, the people who ought to be his people in that city that ought to be his, Jerusalem, and how he longed to gather those folks to himself. If the Psalms are the Bible school of prayer, why is it that so often we, as God's people, have stopped learning? I want to read to you just a very uh, short passage from the book of Job and then a couple of thoughts before we come again to, to pray and to praise our God. And in Job chapter 3, And this isn't going to be a very easy reading from the Bible. Job chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, to give you the background here, like I say, Job had had some incredible sorrows and struggles. When we meet with Job, we find him as, as somebody, everything is going well in life. Everything is going incredibly well in life. He'd be like the, the Bill Gates of his day. Yeah? And the Bible says that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, plus a huge staff of people to look after it all. You would, wouldn't you? That's a lot of animals. And uh, this guy's clearly very wealthy, no doubt. He's a good manager of the things that he has been blessed with in life. And not only that, but he's got a big family. And uh, that in itself was a, an incredible thing in that day, uh, to be able to have so many kids and to, to see them grow up and grow up well and grow up healthy. And then one thing after another after another happens to him. And firstly, he loses all of his prosperity, all of his possessions. It's taken away from him, snatched away from him. And it, it's incredibly tragic, but then things get worse in that personal tragedy comes in the loss of his entire family, all of his kids, 
snatched away in a moment. It's hard to imagine how that must have felt, how, how he could even go on from, from that point, but go on he did, only to then have incredible personal health issues and find himself diseased to the point of his skin in open sores being infected. It's, it's, a, it's a horrendous situation for this man. And, and the Bible makes it plain that in all of this, the Bible needed to make it plain because understandings in, in those days, even as in today, were, were so skewed on this. In all of this, none of it was deserved. You know, in those days, people would like to draw quick and simple consequence. I suspect even today we like to do that. You know, we, we, we look at folks who, who have tragic circumstances and within our own heart we judge whether they deserved it or they didn't deserve it. And people use language of innocence without much understanding. But the Bible makes plain that Job was a righteous man. There was no one like him walking in the earth in those days. And yet all of this comes upon him. How does he respond? Well, in verse 3 of Job 3, the anguish of Job is made plain as he says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. I'm going to leave it there, and I suspect you're glad that I am doing it. It's incredibly tragic, and, and I can't do these words justice. I can't really. Because it's not my lived experience, but the Bible gives us this incredible insight to, to try and comprehend, try and grasp some of the anguish of Job. Strangely enough, here I was this morning at church, and a gentleman popped in at the back door, and, and, and he actually had met some of you wonderful people who had been part of our Scattered Sunday last Sunday. And uh, he'd met some of you out and about and heard a little bit about that, heard a little bit about the work of Tear Fund, actually, as well. And, and he'd written a couple of poems in response. And he said, I can't stay today, but I wanted you to have them. He gave me his phone number. I'll give him a buzz. And he, he said something that caught my imagination. He said, he said, I can't stay to read them today. You're welcome to read them, but you might want me to read them because I, I know how they go. And it, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, I could read what he had written in response to the mission of this church and in response to the work of Tear Fund, but I'd just be reading it kind of cold. I don't know what's been prompted in his heart. He said something else. He said, my mum passed away 11 months ago, and that's when I started writing poetry. And he said, since then, I've written over 300 poems. It's a lot of poems, isn't it? Something within him aching and yearning and grieving and mourning, and yet perhaps seeing something in, in his neighborhood even, 
as somebody told him something about the goodness of God and the way that God is at work in his world, prompted to, to write and to share. You know, I, I can't share it from his heart. But he shared something of his heart with me. Move me. And here we see something of the heart of Job shared in response to his incredible tragedy. And I can't do it justice, but I would suggest to you that you read and you invest and you, you invest yourself in, in this story, even as we've invested ourselves in the stories of those who have come from and are perhaps still in terrible circumstance in our world. And, and we try to do their stories justice and we do our best. We have to dwell upon them and think upon them and recognize what's going on in the hearts and the lives of people. But one thing we can see here with Job is that he didn't just sweep it under the carpet. As he's describing this, and you know, you could say, Job, why do you have to say the same thing 15 different ways? It's because his heart was full of the pain of it. It wasn't simply sufficient for him to say to God, I don't feel too good. There's deep and genuine grief and mourning and pain and loss and suffering that has permeated every part of his life. And it's not good enough just to say, ow. I know we have a beautifully diverse church and all come from different cultures and different ways of going about things. You see, for, for British people, this is a huge blessing because our traditional default um, when we have something difficult in our lives is we just don't talk about it. You know, we just kind of, you know, button ourselves up, don't we, and push things down and, uh, you know, stiff up a lip and all that and move on. It's not the healthiest way always to deal with some of the pains and the struggles of life or of our world. I was reading in that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, about the story of Queen Victoria. Is anybody, there's so many things about Victoria on the telly, aren't there, these days? Do you, do you watch any of these things? Uh, I've seen a few things. But one thing that was famously known about her is that she very, uh, and I hope this is not a plot spoiler for some of the TV programs, but very tragically, her husband, Albert, passed away when Victoria was only 42. And uh, they'd had a pretty rich and full life up until then. But of course... It's young. And, and at that point, everything seemed to fall apart. She didn't have a good way of dealing with the loss and the grief and the pain that had become very real and very present in her life. And uh, the story goes that for years, she continued to sleep with Albert's nightshirt clutched in her arms. And she refused to let everything be anything be changed, rather, in his old room. It became what was known as a sacred room. And you know, they would change the bed linen regularly. No one was there. No one was sleeping in the bed. But they did so. Day by day, fresh clothes would be laid out for Albert, even though he passed on. And hot water was placed for him to have a shave. All because Queen Victoria, she didn't have a way of moving on. She had no way of processing her grief. Morbidly, even wherever she slept, even as she moved around the country, even around the world, she would have a picture of Albert placed on the bed alongside her. It's an image of somebody who struggled, struggled so profoundly with her grief and had no proper way of processing that pain. The Bible says that there is a way. 
And the way is not to uh, distract ourselves from the change of loss, from the, the grief of loss or the pain of mourning. The Bible makes plain that the way is not to, to, to kind of uh, be aware of the story, whether it's our story or another story, but then to kind of just distance that from ourselves. The Bible makes plain that these, uh, these pains and these griefs ought to come close. The Bible makes this supremely plain through the example of Jesus, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ, seeing the pain and the grief and the misery of our world, didn't distantly send platitudes or, or, or send uh, just, just something or someone else. Rather, God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to be present, even a part of our pains and our sufferings, came himself to take upon himself the, the fullest sense of suffering in our world. If we're to follow in the way of Christ, if we're to follow in the way of the cross, then I must remind you, and I know it's, this is not something new for many of you, but it is a way oftentimes of grief and of mourning, of pain and of suffering. And the Bible teaches us that there's a way of us coping well with our grief and loss, not distracting ourselves, not busying ourselves, not distancing ourselves from the pains of our world. What did it look like for Job? Well, we've seen already that he paid attention to his grief. He doesn't hold back, does he? He prays some pretty wild and outrageous prayers in this book. Have a read of it. I don't think any of us would dare to pray as the way Job prayed. Have a look at those Psalms of lament. Some of them, they're far more honest and open than any of us would dare to be with Jesus or with God. Job doesn't hold back. In fact, for about 35 chapters of this book, it's a pretty big book, it's all about the toing and the froing with the struggle. He pays attention to it. Now, we don't know how long uh, Job's struggles continued, but it certainly was a substantial period of time. You know, I don't know, was it weeks, was it months, was it years? But it was substantial. And he wrestled with these things openly and honestly before God. He paid attention to his grief. I don't know, when, when I say that the struggles lasted for some time, some of you, you may think, well, if it's going to last for a while, I'm not even going to start. I'm far too busy to be emotionally healthy. I'm far too busy to actually kind of deal with the pains of my life or of the lives around me or the, the pains of this world, so I'm not even going to get involved well. Hmm. Well, some of you, on the other hand, may think, well, that gives me license to spend the rest of my life in a place of mourning or grief. I don't think either of those things are actually the biblically balanced example. The Psalms, Psalm, chapter, Psalm 30 and verse 5, it says, it says that weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And the biblical pattern that we have and that we'll see briefly from the example of Job is of a time of genuine, true, and real mourning that leads to the healing and the wholeness and the hope that can only be found in God. I don't think you really get one without the other. It's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, isn't it? Mourning, 
leads to joy, perhaps? Why is it that that second beatitude tells us that it is, it is those who mourn who are blessed? What does Jesus add? They'll be comforted. Blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He paid attention to his grief and he learned to wait on God, even though it was confusing. Those in-between times. The book of Job is a book full of religious nonsense. It's full of religious nonsense. And the people around Job thought nothing of bombarding him with platitudes and glib cliches. Can I tell you, and you know this within your own life, you don't need religious cliches, do you? Do you? Well, you come to the wrong place if you do. And just as you don't need religious cliches, neither do the people around you. They don't need those bland nonsenses of, of, of simply quoting a little bit of this or saying a little bit of that and, and somehow that will do it. No, no, no. Truthfully acknowledging genuine and real pain in our lives or in this world, people need something more. You need something more. I know I do. And sometimes it means that waiting, that seeking and that searching truthfully longing for God to come into our places of grief. Will you allow for Jesus to come to you in your place of grief or are you too busy being a Christian? We need to pay attention to our grief. We need to wait on God. And in waiting on God, Job learned his limits. Job, once upon a time, was great in the sight of the world, but he wasn't God. And through this incredibly tragic and devastating process, he learned in a, in a deep and a profound way that he was a limited man, dependent upon God. He learned also that that dependence, that hope in God would not be disappointed. It's a good thing to learn, isn't it? But he learned his limits. Do you know your limits? That word humility it comes from the same root as, as words that mean of the earth. To be humble is to recognize that we are who we are. The Bible makes it plain, doesn't it, that we're, we're, not, we're not made of the same stuff as God. But rather, he came and he made us in his image. But he fashioned us out of the dirt of the earth. It doesn't get more humble than that, does it? I think when we recognize, when we realize what it is that God has made us of, well, we start to think, well, have I any right to be so high and mighty? Do I have any right to be so precious about myself? I was made out of dirt, fashioned in such a way, just of the stuff of this earth, nothing fancy, and yet made in the image of God. And yet, even as we come to Christ with his life breathed anew into us and us made clean and new in God, incredibly. And yet we know that we're wholly reliant on him. Pay attention to your grief. Wait on God. Know our limits in this. And then allow God to help us to come from that place into what is new. We don't have the time this morning. But if you were to read on in the book of Job, you would find that by chapter 42, God calls Job his servant on, on four occasions. Somebody who is being invited into a new chapter, a new relationship with God, a new possibility, a new promise. 
with God. Through all of this process, Job was able to let the old, all of the loss, all of the grief, the pain and the mourning, give birth to the new. He was able to know the reality that we know all the better through Jesus. We might think of 1 Corinthians 15, and there are some incredible verses there that speak to us of this life we have in Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know this is just the briefest of thumbnail sketches. Like I say, tonight we're going to explore this in in much greater depth. I feel very strongly this morning, and it'd be right for me to mention some of the the good things that I'm hearing. You know, this morning, um, Alex came and and he said to me, I was in a meeting uh, just the other day, and and some of the folks from from our church who had been a part of a scattered Sunday, uh, doing something incredible on the wood church, what they'd been doing was acknowledged by some of the, the, the community leaders in that area. And they were, then, they were then trumpeting how good it was in a community meeting. I think that's fantastic, don't you? I think it's incredible. And to see how we might, we might be changed We might be changed. How even we might go through the difficult process of change, of of letting go and actually seeking through through some of the difficult in-between times what God might do in and through us. Just yesterday in the room next door, there were 122, is that right? Uh, Folks from the local community, um, largely kids, which may delight your heart or terrify you, I don't know. Uh, But there they were as part of Messy Church. Uh, Messy Disney, I think, was the theme yesterday. And uh, I'm sure everybody was singing the hits of Frozen and having a great deal of fun. And there were folks absolutely stuffing that room, having fun and learning even just a little bit of the fact that God loves them and that God has incredible plans and purposes for their life in and through Jesus Christ. I think these things are wonderful. But I don't think that these things, I don't think that the change that we seek, even within our own lives, certainly the change that we seek in our community here, even the change that we're hearing about this morning around our world, I don't think these changes come through, through glib and trite answers. I don't think these changes come without a genuine investment of our lives. I don't think these incredible testimonies of the grace of God come if we're not willing to say, yes, I am willing to lose, that we all may gain. You know, Christians, we can cling onto what we think we have so desperately. And yet the Bible teaches us that When we seek to cling onto what we think we have, then we'll lose it in the end anyway. Better it is to give all that we have in Christ so that we might gain what no one can take away. This is the calling of the kingdom of God upon our lives. It's the calling of the kingdom of God upon our lives. I don't know how you've come this morning. I won't share with you the details, but I received a phone call this morning of 
a tragedy that's befallen some folks in our family, no doubt we'll let you know as time goes on and, uh, and you can pray about what's happened to folks within our church family. This morning, they're wrestling with an intense moment of loss. I suspect they're not the only people within our church. Many of you may be in those kinds of situations and you're saying, I'm mourning, I'm sorrowful, I'm, I'm, I'm grief-filled, I may even be angry, I'm wrestling to understand how do I process these things. Others of you, you may be thinking, well, I'm in a pretty good place, I don't want to change. I don't want anything within my life to change so that I might go into a new chapter. I'm pretty happy where I am right now. The Bible teaches us that change is for everybody. Loss comes to everybody. And it's right that we understand, figure out in Christ how we might deal with those processes, though they bring to us sorrow or grief or mourning, so that we may come into the joy of those new days. We need Jesus. Job needed Jesus. And he wouldn't have been able to use that language as he came so long before, but he said, I do know that my Redeemer lives. <laughs> what an insight. Do you know that Jesus is alive? Do you know that Jesus is alive? Do you know that Jesus is alive in your suffering? Do you know that Jesus is alive in the suffering of those around you? Do you know that Jesus is alive in the need of those billion people around our world living beneath that extreme poverty line? Do you know this? Because when we start to know these things, then we don't start to think, ah, what difference does it make? We start to realize that we're partnering with the Jesus who is alive in these places and these people and these opportunities and these promises, which in God are yes and amen. And we know that we can journey with him. Though it be ever so painful, we can change so that God might be glorified in our lives. He might be glorified in our witness. He might be glorified in our world. I wonder, would you bow your heads with me? In a moment, we're singing our closing song. and As we do so, we'll have the opportunity to give, as we regularly do to the ministry and the mission of the church here. We also have that opportunity to fill in those cards and to contribute in places that we may never go, but places that we believe that Jesus already is by means of his spirit, doing incredible things that we've heard of this morning. And we get to be a part of that. And our giving, whether it's here, whether it's with Tear Fund, it flows from who we are in God. And this morning we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, who am I? Who am I in God? What's going on in my life? What things is God at work in in my life? Am I paying attention to them? Or am I so busy, am I so distracted that there's no room for the Spirit to bring change in my life? We have this opportunity. Even now. 
to say, God, what is it that you would lead me in and through? How would you change me? How would you show me my limits and your unlimited grace? Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for this opportunity to pray with my brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, I believe that your hand is upon each and every life gathered here as it is upon so many others, Lord. And it's your will that we might grow in your likeness, that we might become more and more like you. That, Lord Jesus Christ, we might honor you with lives of holiness, that we might enjoy you in lives of healing and wholeness. That, Lord Jesus Christ, what you do to us, you can then do through us for the sake of those around us and for the glory of your name. Jesus, would you lead us in these ways?